To anyone who spends time in the countryside, these sounds will be familiar. But will that always be the case? In recent years, billions of pounds worth of investment have been ploughed into the development of lab-grown meat by multinational corporations such as Tyson Foods and Cargill. And some of the big spenders have been vocal about animal agriculture, viewing it as a dying industry based on unethical, non-environmentally friendly principles. Farmers, then, have naturally viewed this growth industry with suspicion, fearing it has the potential to put them out of business and rip the beating hearts out of vibrant rural communities, while further consolidating the food industry and leaving power in the hands of a select few multi-millionaires. But what is the truth of the matter? I'm Abby Kay, Head of News at Farmers Guardian, and I'm going to speak to three experts to find out. Hello, I'm Peter Anthony. Uh, I'm farming in the Slinby Valley in South Wales, uh, beef and sheep hill, hill farmer, basically uh, doing everything we can for looking after the environment as well as producing good quality uh, red meat. Uh, it's Lee Dunsford. Uh, I'm the CEO of Cellular Agriculture Limited, uh, the first company in the cultured meat sphere in the UK, uh, and I'm also uh, a farmer. Hi, I'm Tom McMillan. I uh, work at the Royal Agriculture University at Cirencester as Professor of Rural Policy and Strategy, and uh, I'm involved with ICTID in a project about cultured meat and farmers. So we're going to kick off with a nice, easy one. What is cultured meat? I tend to, I mean, the way I usually describe it is in the simplest of terms, it's when we take a cell from an animal, so either at the point of slaughter or from a biopsy, and we, we feed those cells. So in the same way that we'd speed for, forage or grain to cattle, we, we feed exactly the same nutrients to the cells, uh, and they multiply, and the resulting product is exactly the same as meat. So we can process, further process it into any kind of food product. And how close is it to getting onto UK shelves? Uh, realistically, it's 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 a case of getting through the regulatory process. So there, there are some changes afoot at the moment in terms of novel food application in the UK. It's a, but it's a case of really a company applying for that. So an eighteen month process to make sure that it's safe to eat and to, to be be licensed to be on the market. Um, but but actually, you know, if if we think globally, uh, it's already on the market in in Singapore and there are the number of other uh, territories where where this regulation process is happening at the moment. So that regulatory process, even if you go through that, is it a financially viable product, even if it is approved by the regulator? Uh, it's currently a niche product because it's 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 high value. It's, it's costly to, to produce at the moment. But it's it's a case of the challenge, really, that, that a lot of companies are facing. And, and like our own, our own is, is not looking at actually making food product. We're, we actually design technology. So what we're challenged with is scale and how do we take it from something that's a, a relatively niche product to it being something that's commonplace on, on everyone's shelves. I'm going to open this question up to everybody, but um, we'll start with you. Do you think the public are open to eating cultured meat? Yeah, so studies in the UK so far by the FSA do do show that, that there's an interest in, in consuming it. And wider afield in, in sort of Germany and in, in, in the Netherlands, where there's, there's probably been a little bit more history of it, um, definitely a considerably greater proportion of people would 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 consume we've got to remember it is already on the market so people are consuming it in singapore and they can't produce enough of it at the moment so there's there's definitely a um there's definitely an interest and people are enjoying it as a product what about you tom would you agree with that 
Yeah, and like all these things, it's a it's a mix. So you get a range of a range of attitudes, and that comes through in the research as well. Uh, what it what it also shows is that how you how you sell it um, and uh, and how it's described and, and and that sort of thing makes makes a bit of a difference. And there's that's been a long running debate within the industry and among uh, among researchers working on it. Is you know what what is it and how do you describe it and do you call it meat or not and how much is it just driven by the brand you know the brand name of the product um versus you know the description of, of what it is uh, and that gets into some of the you know same as for uh, for um kind of plant-based uh, plant-based substitutes for meat and dairy products you get into those same kind of uh, naming naming debates which in some countries are getting are getting into regulatory territory as to what you are and aren't allowed to call um you know meat and, and, and things so you do get into that into that world when you're thinking about people's people's appetite for it but in terms of the you know for the foreseeable who said that the the um at this stage it's quite it's, it's early early days for it um you're talking uh you're talking niche products actually even the singapore stuff is is pretty dilute in a way it's like a small amount of small amount of culture meat in with a with a bunch of other stuff like plant plant-based um uh plant-based ingredients so uh so it's um the d- lack of demand in a way the market the kind of market potential being the limiting factor feels like quite a long way off that that feels like something that might might or might not kick in as a as a barrier further down the line. I think there's a different, slightly different question around what you might call social license. So basically, not will a certain will enough people buy it to make it to make it worth selling, but overall, how do people's kind of attitudes around it feed into the into shaping the regulatory environment and shaping how much investment you know what the mood is around it and whether 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 the sort of there's an open um whether it's a struggle for companies to get products into market in terms of all the barriers and so on or whether it's uh, whether there's a kind of open door approach to it and and public attitudes affect that as well as simply playing through the marketplace and you see that in all sorts of other areas of emerging technology um uh, that being a that being an issue and obviously it's a, you know the most famous one being gm where you know it's it, that there's 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 all sorts of work on, you know, what, how, how many people would buy particular versions of particular products with or without GM in them or whatever. But, but ultimately, it's, it's how the kind of overall, um, overall um, debates around it have shaped the policy and the regulatory environment in different countries. That's been the, that, and, and, the and indeed, um, kind of retailer and corporate policies around it. That's been the bigger factor. So I think that's, that's relevant. Um, uh, probably won't be a, won't be a kind of deal breaker for culture meat, but is is also part of the mix when you're thinking about how all this might play out in the market. What about you, Peter? Would you agree that the public are pretty open? I I don't think that the public would be quite so open when they actually uh, when you actually say that you know this is lab produced meat at the end of the day. Uh, is it real meat or not? I'm not not sure on on that score. But um, a couple of people that I did ask yesterday, obviously, is in my local area. Uh, a couple of people that I bumped into and uh, said, what would they think of it? And uh, the sort of response was, well, it's not natural. It's not it's produced in a lab. And uh, we want natural food, not, uh, not stuff that's produced in a lab. So I think that it's, uh, it's a concerning thing. It is that are we, as the, you know, the human race, messing with things that we shouldn't be messing with? suppose there's a related question there about whether there is actually a grassroots demand for this product or whether it's being pushed by investors with commercial interests. 
Um, Peter, I'll come to you first on that. What do you think about that? Uh, I think that it would be very worrying with uh, people with commercial interests and very and a small number of investors getting their hands on it. Uh, they're probably looking at it from a money point of view rather than uh, they should be looking at it or the rest of them farming and uh, most people are looking at producing natural food that is good, wholesome food uh, that's produced in the UK, uh, Wales and you know further afield. Uh, and I think this, the human race then, it's at our peril that we mess with, uh, with things that we don't really know about and we go away from naturally produced foods. Ixid, what do you think? Are you responding to a demand or are you trying to drive it? Um, so I guess I, to, to kind of answer that, I'd probably need to consider what the history of the industry is. So the, those early pioneers who, who were sort of the scientists starting this were all invested through sort of a degree of altruism. So one of the leading scientists in, in the Netherlands was prisoner of war during the Second World War. And it was actually through experiencing hunger and extreme hunger that he realized that if he cultured cells for food, that that could actually solve the issue of hunger. Uh, and, and then similarly, the, the kind of early scientific projects um, were, were done by NASA to look at how we, we, would, we would feed um, those, those traveling to, to other planets. So the, the origin is kind of quite different. And I guess that the first early investors came from uh, impact investors. So they were lo- looking at, at, at how to invest in technologies that could have a significant effect on, on the environment or on, on, on the planet or in, in, in whichever field they were looking to invest in. Um, it's only now, really, that we're starting to get investors that, that are slightly more commercially minded. But ultimately, when a, when a technology matures, you, you have to make a return on it. And so... That's the reason that, that that happens. But it doesn't mean that it has to be in the hands um, of, of big corporations. It, it, I mean, part of the project that, that, that we're looking at at the moment is, can this be a decentralized technology? Can we look at different models of how this can be done? Could this support farming? Um, because in the end, a lot of the inputs are, are from um, the agricultural inputs. You know, it's, it's the same, same things that we need to feed ourselves as we would animals. And so that question is yet to be answered. But it's it's a key one for us to consider as as the industry develops. And of course, you know, it's it's good to have these conversations so that if farmers actually want to get engaged and be part of this industry, there is an opportunity to do that. And now is the time to to start that engagement. Tom, I know it's early days, but is there a risk then that this kind of product could, as I said, sort of further consolidate the food industry into the hands of a few big companies? That is one of the overriding fears of the people that I speak to about this. Yeah, I think I think that is a risk. Um, as with a lot of areas of uh, of innovation around agriculture and food, that's that's definitely a risk. Because certainly, certainly, um, any any area which requires a lot of capital investment carries that risk because it it, it relies then on uh, on businesses or indeed um, you know governments. So you can you have public sector investors or funders, but it relies on on people with deep pockets to get it over the line. And so that that's the that's the stage we're at in a way with this is um, what kind of choices we want to make, uh, and particularly that balance of public and private investment and um, and the regulatory environment and things that might steer the development of of these this area of technology down one path or another. And it's not just you know this. Uh, the options aren't just, you know, is it is it corporate or is it 
um, kind of this more decentralized version of it. Those are those are among the options. But there's also, does it happen at all? Actually, does it sort of fizzle? Do we do we end up with it happening, but actually it all happening in other countries, and we either opt out or we buy buy in? You know, and and so there's there's a whole bunch of different ways um, that it could that it could unfold. And I think the 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 point of the piece of work we're getting involved in is to is to not see those as kind of set in stone and just something that's going to happen to farming, but something where actually farmers should be able to have an active voice in it and, and sort of explore some of the concerns which are really understandable. Um, and uh, But also think about uh, how, to, how to mitigate some of the threats really directly, um, but also to, to sort of dig into it a little bit more and go, well, actually, when you unpack this, are there areas of opportunity, are there different different ways that it could play out that could be um could actually be kind of more upside and downside um and um uh, and, and 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 how one might one make those happen and just just back to the questions around you know is there a grassroots demand for it as well i think it's tricky because for a lot of for a lot of new things in a way they're 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 nearly always a bit more sort of push than pull in terms of market demand and that would apply to a load of a load of areas of um yeah, food manufacturing and current agricultural demand that we take for granted um and you know one of the big one of the big issues in in national food policy is the extent to which um market behavior consumer what consumers eat is very kind of push not pull in terms of in terms of demand so you know why we don't um, necessarily uh, eat that healthy a lot of it's to do with the differential marketing spend all that sort of thing so it's not a unique issue for 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 this area of technology um that there isn't it's not all about kind of you know intrinsically people really wanting this stuff um uh, that's kind of the way the food market works um and and is uh, and is problematic in lots of ways again and likewise i think the naturalness thing there's uh some people care more about that than others and it's one of those ideas that loads of people see in lots of different ways i think within within farming it gets um kind of played out as an argument by different communities within farming at different moments in different ways and not always consistently so you might find farmers who were were kind of thought that sort of public concerns around naturalness on gm were kind of piffling nonsense whatever uh, being quite concerned about naturalness when it comes to cultured meat, and that might be, um, you know, that might reflect what they feel about it, but it might also be, in a way, a way of giving voice to a whole bunch of other concerns that are maybe, you know, it's a shorthand for a bunch of stuff that is both the kind of economic concerns and kind of ethical concerns, all kind of wrapped up together into a sense that something's not a good idea. So, so a lot of these things are, are kind of. You know, we have the we have debates often, and and particularly on social media and things that quite quite a face value, um, uh, sometimes quite knee-jerk. And I think it's really important that we unpack them a little bit, um, challenge ourselves to think what we mean when we're using words like, um, you know, whether it's naturalness, when we're thinking about market demand and, and things like that um, uh, as well. And just a quick thought on the, as I was saying, who the investors are and um, and how much of it is driven by, if you like, by cause versus by making a ton of cash. Um, I think the, there's a bit of an interesting thing going on at the moment as well, whereas, as it says, you've got, you're at a stage now where you're getting much bigger investors kind of piling in to the industry, but you've also got um, kind of more, uh, a, bit, a, bit, a bit of a change in the networks that exist that are sort of part of the NGO campaign 
networks, partly kind of industry groups that exist to sort of try and try and coordinate efforts to develop the sector and in a way do do kind of advocacy and lobbying around what the sector needs and so on. And you're seeing a shift from those, um, I think, in their origins, sometimes being quite uh, oppositional to animal agriculture, in a way, kind of pitching an animal-free future for food production to um, to that evolving into something a little bit different. Again, actually, maybe that's a bit simplistic. And um, maybe some of these technologies depend rather a lot on livestock farming, and maybe farmer livelihoods, uh, including livestock farm livelihoods, are more important then it assumes there's a bit of a shift in trajectory from the the, the, the sort of sector as a whole and how it's positioning itself in relation to farming. And uh, I think much more interest in uh, in kind of bringing farmers into how that how the how the future of the sector develops. I think it's a sorry, that's a really valid point because when I entered the industry in 2015, I was probably a lone agricultural voice in the industry. And it was termed at that time as kind of a post-animal bioeconomy. And being a livestock farmer, that that I, I just, you know, I, I couldn't get on board with that in any way. But I felt that there was far more importance for me as a farmer to be within the industry, to have my voice and to, to speak within the industry and try and enact some form of change rather than just oppose it. And it's there's definitely been this shift because now there's talk of a just, just transition. If farmers want to, um, it, it doesn't necessarily mean moving from livestock. It could mean from if you're an animal farmer and you're currently producing um, some a commodity product, you know how can you how can you produce something that, that's a far more value that will go into the, the the food chain that that either supports the you know the nutrient growth of cultured meat, but also in in, in things like in alternative proteins because essentially you know plant based is is not opposed to meat. Plant based is still an agricultural product, so somebody has to produce it. So if there's a financial opportunity for us as farmers to to, to grow those things, shouldn't we? Shouldn't we take those with, with with two hands? So there's definitely a maturity, I think, within the community that sits around cultured meat and those advocacy groups that are starting to understand that you can't make agriculture the villain. Um, and that's really why sort of Tom and I sort of applied for this this grant was like, how can we look at not just the threats but also those opportunities that, that the agricultural industry can be faced with? Well, definitely. Uh, can I uh, say yeah, something? Uh, there seems to be a little bit of a naivety with some of the people that are talking about plant-based and going plant-based uh, that just get rid of the the animals then off the off the fields, the cattle and the sheep off the fields, and we'll we'll use that ground then to produce this plant-based food. Well, basically, you're talking in Wales. Eighty percent of the uh, of the land used for agriculture is not su- not suitable for growing those sort of crops. Basically, it's suitable for for growing grass. And the best way of turning that grass then into protein is in a good quality high high quality protein is both beef and lamb, and that's good for the environment. And good grazed grass is very good for carbon sequestration as well. So environmentally and for human health it's the it's the best way forward and there's big chunks of the world that are the same of the same sort of way that are not capable of growing uh, these crops that are needed so i think that we need a balance of the crops and the livestock then within it peter can i just ask you then are you are you convinced by this argument that tom and nixon are putting forward that um, livestock farmers have more of a voice in this process or do you still feel as though these investors are anti-animal agriculture and um, it's not going to benefit farmers? What's your perspective on this? 
I think my worry is that these investors are not really concerned about uh, concerned about the livestock agriculture, the any agriculture. All they're concerned about is the pound notes that they're looking at, or you know, is the money side of things. And those sort of people will spend huge amounts of money, uh, basically skewing the argument in their favour just to get the uh, get everything they can out of it monetary wise. Tom, this research has been mentioned a couple of times now. Can you just tell us a little bit more about what specifically you're looking at? In a way, what we've just been discussing is very much the starting point. So you've got this culture meat industry developing. It's at a stage where it's not that far off, potentially coming to the market, including the UK. And there's been a fair bit of, there's been tons of work on how to make the stuff and dealing with all the kind of the succession of kind of techie challenges that come up when you try and make culture meat at at scale. Uh, There's been quite a lot looking at what do consumers and the public think of it and looking at the animal, uh, animal welfare ethics and that kind of, that kind of side of it and looking at the environmental impact and how that compares with um, not only with uh, livestock production, but also with other alternative proteins and so on. So it's been a fair bit of work on all that, but what there hasn't been is, um, very much attention to what it means for farmers, and there's been, you know, like, like we touched on this um, this assumption that the premise is the premise of the technology is to get rid of animal farming, um, and uh, and understandably either a very strong concern about it from farmers or a degree of scepticism that it might not happen anyway, um, and the concerns are there for all the reasons like you were just saying, Peter. The the this this sense that the investors don't have really any interest in farming or if they do it's in getting rid of bits of it and um, and and those are all understandable concerns but in a way there's not been much kind of unpicking of how if different versions of this technology develop what would that actually mean for farmers where would be the pressure points um you know there's a real difference probably in whether it ends up you know you know competing with high value steaks in restaurants or whatever, or competing with um, uh, processed chicken and, and, and so on. You know, th- those, those effect who who gets, um, uh, who sort of wins and loses, I guess, in farming and how it affects value chains and, um, and markets for arable, you know, within, within the livestock sector, um, uh, what happens. But then there's also some, um, some of these much more specific uh, Kind of either opportunities or um, detailed things that might go on. So there's issues around where the cell lines come from, because um, a lot of this, a lot, a lot of the approaches to making this would still depend on um, on uh, harvesting the kind of initial cells from animals. So those might be quite high value animals. Um, you may they may even producing those really high value market potentially might sit alongside producing meat. The market might be, you know, might be the same farm, same business, doing both. It might just be additional revenue stream, uh, high value alongside a kind of high value, low volume, um, you know, kind of less but better, if you like, um, livestock market for conservation gross product, whatever it might be. So it might complement um, some of the trajectories that people in the sector, in in in, in um, beef and sheep, for example, are really thinking about. And but that's not nobody knows yet really that's not been unpacked all the thinking about licensing for that hasn't been explored there's other things like um you know just we're just starting to get our heads around this but there's things like amino acid production for cultured meat um which we have to say more about because i don't I'm, i haven't got my head around it yet myself but um but you know some of these things are 
there are some really expensive ingredients that might be available more readily uh, within within farming and might be a source of income for farming might use byproducts or current waste products within farming and, and add some value there now all these things um need to be uh need to be scrutinized quite thoroughly because you, know, you get farmers will be uh familiar with and probably uh kind of um understandably uh, frustrated with all the ideas that people come up with that that kind of uh, turn to dust when you try and put them to reality of all the wonderful kind of co-products and byproducts and waste products that they can make money from, which actually, you know, because you, you hear about these things all the time and then a lot of them don't come good. So you need to take this stuff with a pinch of salt, but some of them are worth looking into. And, and that's the kind of thing we'll be doing in the project. So we'll be mapping out what the ingredients are for cultured meat, which ones currently do come from farming or could come from farming in the future. So where, where, where don't they come from farming at the minute, but maybe they could. Um, We'll then look at, we'll, I'll be finding out from large numbers of farmers what they currently think of it, not in a kind of just what they're saying on farming forum and Twitter, that's part of it, but also kind of more in-depth conversations, unpacking some of the concerns and, and so on. Um, uh, then uh, we're going to think about the different ways that the whole market might develop overall and you know how much money piles into the sector, um, what happens with climate change policies, all this sort of thing that might affect the overall lie of the land, um, and you know the competition from other alternative proteins, plant-based, and so on. And then we'll work with the idea is eight farmers in really different situations. So like um, uh, for example, Peter, the situation you're talking about of farmland sheep farming in, in Wales, uh, but also arable farming, mixed farming situations, and work with them on a farm business modelling kind of basis to look at how in their circumstances they might, um, in a way, how they might meet the culture meat industry. And in some cases that might involve that decentralized approach that it talked about of like, you know, craft scale production on farm, um, maybe alongside livestock farming. In other examples, it might, it might mean treating it as the competition. In other circumstances, it might mean um, uh, producing, for example, feedstock to go into the growth media that the cells are cultured in. So, you know, there's, there's lots of different ways it could play out. And what we'll do is look at the um, economic, from a farm business point of view, environmental and sort of social and ethical impacts of those different versions working with those farms and with um, and obviously with the people who can do the number crunching in each case and uh, and and play through those scenarios with, with the farmers and, and other groups of farmers, sort of peer groups. Uh, involved thinking about that so it's, it's sort of exploratory it won't come up with the answer but it will map out much more clearly we hope where the really big risks are for farming that might need heading off uh if there are any opportunities to bring those to light and think how to make them to make make them come good um and uh and then um what that means for investors and for particularly for policymakers but obviously of course for farmers as well so that's the that's the shape of the project and we're going to do that in the next couple of years Sounds really interesting. Um, there's loads to unpack there. I'm going to touch on a couple of the points, but just to get a farmer perspective then first, Peter, do you think that you, your community, the landscape should have anything to fear from cultured meat? Um, pr probably that, uh, yeah, the community, the Welsh community, the UK farming community uh, is based around the red meat sector, or there's a lot, a lot of areas then, a lot of the hill uh, areas, the upland areas, where they're doing tremendous environmental good as well as producing this uh, high quality, nutrient dense uh, protein then coming from the both the sheep and the and the cattle. Uh, 
you know, if you if you a lot of that is going to be replaced, there's a lot of communities are going to suffer. A lot of the areas then um, where the farmers like ourselves, we've got uh, four families that are having a living off the farm. And then in the wider community, there's a lot of uh, what we produce and what we where we uh, spend the money then. Uh, there's a lot of the businesses would suffer greatly if there's not a vibrant agricultural uh, sector. Uh, and also, when we're looking forward as well to net zero, uh, you know, the NFU have said net zero by 2040, and we're all as farmers doing everything we can towards that. Uh, and we're one of the very few industries that can sequestrate carbon and can be the you know the answer to that. There's not many. Most other industries are producers of carbon, not not uh, sequestrators of carbon. So I think when we're going down like a regenerative route and everything, uh, that's a far better route and a far more healthier route for for the general public as well. And I think that when you come back to the saying as far as being a shortage of food worldwide, uh, I think that farmers worldwide, and especially the UK farmers, Welsh farmers, can produce this food. It's when politics gets involved and the food isn't uh, got to the right place at the right time that there's shortages of food. As we've seen now with uh, what's going on in Ukraine, it's not that the food isn't there, it's the, the problems with politics. And Ixid, what's your perspective? Because you have you wear two hats, don't you? You're a farmer and you've got an interesting cultured meat. Do, do farmers have anything to fear? So, so I th- think everything that Peter said is absolutely valid. Um, but also I could use all those same arguments for considering, you know, current ag policy, uh, post-Brexit, all, all the things that we're currently facing as farmers, that's the impact that will happen if if the agriculture industry is eroded in some way. And there's a huge amount of challenges that we're facing in the next few years. Um, so, so yes, you know, I, I don't necessarily think the cultured meat is the greatest threat that, that, that exists to agriculture. I actually think that, it, that we need as farmers to take a holistic approach to the land that we have and how can we use it. And, you know, go, going back to the, to the, to the point that, that, that Peter made earlier about we're great at producing grass here in Wales, we are. But, you know, we also do need to consider are there other alternatives for that grass? You know, can that grass be be used through through new innovations to produce new foods, or to you know, can we take the available proteins from that for human consumption? Can we take the sugars from that for, for another use? You know, it it wouldn't stop us producing grass, but but it might not mean that we have to have livestock to to, to graze that grass. But we have to actually think outside the box because we, as farmers, we're not competing against our neighbours in local markets anymore. We're competing on on a global scale. And in the UK, we're particularly good in terms of innovation. So I really think that we need to be considering what else can we do other than what we've always done. I mean, it's interesting for us this year, you know, we historically, we haven't grown any grain on our, our land since the 1950s. And this year, we put some heritage grain in. Very small test plot, but nonetheless, it's really interesting to consider that, okay, it's very low yielding, but I can actually grow that on, on the land that I have, which traditionally would have been for for forage for, for for cattle. So it's, you know, there are other options out there. The problem that largely comes down to in the end is the price. You know, I can't do it high yielding. I can't do it at, at a, um, a sort of at any kind of cost parity to anyone else. But there'll come a future where we'll have to consider in terms of the food that are needed to, to field, world, you know, growing world populations. And, and we'll have to change the way in which we think about what, what we do. And just to pick up on um, a point that Tom made, he was talking about the kind of meat that you expect 
um, cultured meat to this place? Is it steaks or is it chicken nuggets? What What are your views on that, Ifted? So, so at the moment, producing things that, that like chicken nuggets or sausages or burgers is actually relatively straightforward because um, it's uh, steaks are hugely complex product. Um, it's it's much more than than just you know that, that ground meat. So. For, for lots of companies, there are one or two that are focused on steak, but realistically, the, the first products on the market will all be things that, that that are a blend or something. But realistically, in five to ten years, we probably will be looking at much more complex structures like like steak on the market because that's what people want to 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 to, to target. Because at the moment, if you think of the plant-based industry, very few are actually targeting anything like steak because they, they're just not able to produce it. But because these are cells that are made, are meat cells, they're nutritionally, chemically exactly the same, the same flavor. You don't have to add anything to make the flavor because they are, are meat. It, you know, we're already ahead of the game in terms of that point. So in, in that, that challenge is actually to, to, to mimic you know, that, that, not just the, the taste and the smell and the look, but actually all the emotional uh, reaction that we have to meat uh, in, in, a, in a mimic product. Peter, do you think that's realistic hearing us to speak there? I, I suppose it's realistic that it uh, it could come along that you'd be able to produce steak in that way. Uh, but the problem is you're getting back to the fact that it's just not a naturally produced product. And it's not it's something that's being produced in a lab, in a Petri dish. And when you come into it, you're going down the lines of uh, Frankenstein meat and that sort of um, thing with it. And I think that there's nothing better than, uh, you know, environmentally friendly produced meat that is being produced then in the Welsh Hills and in the UK uh, as a whole. Uh, as, an, as a farming industry, we are very proud of our environmental credentials, animal welfare, and all that everything else that goes with that then as well. And I think that we've got to be very careful then as a human race as to what we go down the route of producing stuff in a lab, which is, at the end of the day, it's not natural. It's just not something. And we're producing protein off the grass at the moment. Uh, it would be nice to think that there could be other ways of using that grass. Uh, but as to what sort of processing would be needed and as what environmental cost that that would come to, um, you know, we're slammed as farmers for lots of things as far as uh, what we do to the environment and how much water that is used then to produce a kilo of beef then in our way. But 85% of that is rain, natural rain that falls out of the sky to uh, grow the grass. You know, these figures are being skewed all shapes against the, uh, the product that we're producing. So you mentioned there that it's going to be easier to um, make products like burgers, sausages, nuggets and what have you first. Is that going to have an impact on carcass balance, potentially? Absolutely. But um, it's interesting, that's where I came to this industry. So um, my previous business was a meat processing business. And a lot of the work that we were doing in that business was looking at valorizing animal waste byproducts that, that were going as waste as opposed to being used for food. So we were actively looking at how we use blood, fat, skin, bone, and how we could keep those to make food products. And the issue was that actually there's a huge carcass imbalance because you know, with 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 a cow, you are limited to the number of steaks and the amount of different cuts that you have, and that's what you have to sell. Whereas what hit me was actually a quote by Winston Churchill from the 1930s in this conference that I went to um, as part of my Nuffield Farming Scholarship in 2015, 
where he'd envisaged that in, in 50 years in the future that you could produce just the chicken breast as opposed to the whole animal. And there was me working in, in, in the meat industry, trying to find and to add value to try and find a use for all these food products. And, you know, sort of looking nearly a century ago now um, at this idea that actually we could produce the thing that people want to consume. So, yes, there will be an impact on um, on carcass balance. And we can actually already see it even in, in the small increase in plant based foods. Most of those are targeting um, ground meat products. Um, and even the small market increase there is already seeing a slight shift in 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 the meat industry and and the effect because it's it, it's pushing where we're so that, that that specific area of, of, of how we use the forequarter uh, as mints. So m- most definitely, but I actually do think that we need to consider that that's part of the issue. Is yes, grass produces livestock and good quality protein, but it produces a cow or it produces you know lamb. And you have to use all its constituent parts in order for it uh, to, to, to be financially viable. And it's actually inefficient in the same way that we as a human body is inefficient. You know, So that's the difference why by, by doing it by, um, by a process, you're only producing the parts um, that you want to consume. How do you manage that in the interim period, though, where you're knocking the carcass balance even further out of kilter? Um, that's yeah, that's a that's a big big question. Um, so so I'm just a, completely you know I, I don't believe that we're going to replace animals in any way. Now I'm, I don't see this as being technology that replaces it. I think there's a role for for animals. It's just that potentially, and I, I can see it here in in sort of where, where I live in, in in West Wales. There's some some extreme soil erosion in some places that 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 we've got grazing. But equally, our land is different now to what it was 70, 100 years ago. So we can't farm in the way that we used to. So we have to make changes. And so there are these effects that are going to happen. And I think there is going to be a challenge. You know, if we think of something like lamb, we only eat 5% of, of what we produce in Wales. 95% of it leaves leaves Wales. So, but it's lamb's an odd product. You know, not many people actually like it. And as people's diets change, we're going to have real questions about the need to produce some specific proteins. Can I come in on this as well? Because I, I think there's a, whole, there's a whole bunch of things that come together here. So one is this idea that diets both are changing but also from a climate change point of view and and sort of squaring climate change and nature crisis and and the sort of diet challenges probably need to change um uh, but that that a lot of the climate and the nature side of it is hinges less on these debates about you know how many uh, liters of water or tons of uh, carbon it takes to produce uh, kilo of lamb or a kilo of beef or whatever uh, and more on what what often gets called the land opportunity costs so what would you do with that land if for example if some of it not all of it because nobody's talking about all of it but if if bits of it um some portions of it uh, were for example left to regenerate so it's not about planting trees unnecessarily but letting them letting them grow some grow some, grow grow into trees and and i think that's the comparison so often it, it does matter this stuff about impact and debates about sequestration rates in pasture and all that sort of thing um but uh, but a big part of the picture a big part of the debate that often gets missed out is this sort of what's the alternative scenario what else as well as growing grass could we do on on some of that land um uh, and uh, and that's where it starts to get both Kind of more interesting, but also potentially more uh, more complicated. And um, and just again to be clear, even in the most kind of well, not I wouldn't say the most dramatic, but in most of the kind of pretty um, uh, pretty sort of full on scenarios for changes in diet and changes in agriculture, actually, 
the um, the rate of change in meat consumption and production wouldn't be a million miles off what the trend has been over the past you know 20, 30 years or whatever. So we're not talking, even advocates of, of dietary change aren't talking about kind of dramatic cliff edges for um, for livestock producers. And that still brings loads of challenges. And and as you said, you know, they're really accentuated when it comes to carcass balance because the 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 ideal place from a if 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 you're thinking about transitioning diets and then for example I worked on the team behind the national food strategy um and uh, and there we talked quite a lot about the case for some changes in diet and some targets around that and so forth um that would uh, not see huge changes in land use but would see some changes in land use over a over a period but um but the case for doing that is much strongest when you're talking about uh, about processed meat because that's where in a way, the um, the, uh, the any of the downsides associated with substituting um, kind of plant-based or indeed cultured meat for uh, for livestock meat are diminished. Um, and something like you know half the meat we eat is now in in processed products. So you've got you could you could meet all the targets and some that have been set for you know plant-based or whatever by just substituting out processed meat, not touching cuts at all. But obviously that has massive implications for target for, for carcass balance. So you can't actually do that. Um, and so you've got this, this kind of weird trade-off where the stuff that's easiest to make with these new technologies is the processed stuff. From a kind of public health and environmental point of view, that's where you'd want to substitute. Arguably from a farmer value point of view, that's where you'd want to see the substitution. Um, but there's a kind of technical limitation and there's a trade-off around kind of carcass utilization and waste and, and so on as well. But overall, the, the trend, um, as I understand it, over the past uh, few decades has been for less of the carcass to go to cuts and more to go into processed products, including ready mules and so on. Um, and not necessarily as ground meat or as the kind of, you know, if you like the kind of, kind of things that, you know, if you're putting into charcuterie or whatever, but 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 more and more of the carcass to go into lower value uh, and and lower return to farmer um, kind of destinations within food. So it feels like there's a um, not just talking about culture meat, but just in general when it comes to this whole kind of debate about where alternative proteins head and how that plays out for farmers. It feels like there are opportunities to explore about how to how to make this work in a way that really supports farmers getting a better return, that doesn't have unintended consequences in terms of carcass balance and, and increasing um, uh, increasing waste and so on, and that really complements um, you know, all the moves around uh, regenerative farming and, um, and kind of uh, allowing some kind of complexity and encouraging a bit of complexity in the landscape and you know, in, 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 you know mixtures of, of grass and um, and trees and natural generation and so on. Uh, but it's all none of it needs to be that dramatic, I guess is the point. Um, uh, it's stuff that can potentially be folded in. Um, without big shocks to the system, without big shocks to, to uh, produce communities, and hopefully with you know with some upside. And I think those are those are those need to be um, you need to get into the detail in order to have a chance of 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 harnessing those potential upsides. Um, and uh, whereas if we if we focus you know, mainly on trying to see off the threats, 
I don't think as a farming sector we'll probably manage to see off the threats, but also um, but also it it might mean we, we, we sort of miss some opportunities to pick out where there's opportunity where, where, where there's some where there's some potential um, uh, potential upside. And that's not to say with cultured meat, for example, that that's that that's a foregone conclusion. There might not be much upside there, but let's at least let's at least try and figure out whether there could be. Fascinating discussion, and um, I just want to put on record that I am a lamb lover. Um, um I think you might be the right person to come to for this final question then what about the health benefits of cultured meat I mean you said it's exactly the same product as meat is has there been research into that whether the health benefits are the same uh yeah so so uh, chemically nutritionally it is the same so um this is an anecdotal thing I, I had a conference in in the Netherlands uh and talking to um a chap who owns an independent laboratory there who uh, was the main laboratory user as part of the horse meat scandal. Um, and so he he was testing uh, products and he was asked to take a product from a supermarket and take some some cultured meat and test them side by side, so blindly to see what the difference was. And he, he couldn't tell the difference. So from a from a from a meat perspective, you know, it, it is meat. Um, but I guess the the next stage is that what we've touched on partially today is about kind of these nutrients that we need to feed, the same nutrients that we feed feed livestock. There is a possibility that, that in the future, with a little bit more of research, we could actually make a, um, a better balanced meat. So we, we can we can choose which specific nutrients we feed in order for it to, to, to be healthier. But it's realistically, it's the same principle as, you know, as us um, choosing a, a particular breed, uh, on on a particular type of pasture for it to, to have that kind of resulting flavour. It's it's no different from from how we choose things in the traditional agricultural industry. We make that same selection in terms of what we feed the cell. Yeah, kind of coming on that though, because I, I think doesn't that probably say more about how that how that lab was testing meat than it does about whether they are actually the same or not? Because I think there's uh, if you could tell the difference by poking it and the test can't tell the difference by analysing it, then then it's probably um it's it's probably you know because you've got all the you got the scaffolds. It's not just the meat cells in a way, and um, and so I think I think there is there is a debate there. There's that whole um, kind of evolving science around understanding ultra processed food and whether you know kind of what implications that has for uh, for um, for health, and in particular is a relationship with how our gut bacteria and sort of the you know the the kind of thousands of microorganisms in our gut kind of help us process um process the food and digest food uh and maybe you know nobody's really understands how that works but there's certainly an, enough um uh kind of emerging science there to think there's just there's something there's something worth understanding and that at that level that's beyond the sort of you know the the, the kind of nutrients you see listed on the back of a label it's a level of detail that that is is poorly understood at the moment, but might matter quite a lot. And I think it's in when you get into um, into that kind of territory, which is moving the science there is moving as well. And we might see in the next you know five ten years or something a really a really different set of perspectives arising on you know what uh, um, you know to Peter your points about naturalness and stuff that applying to. Um, to some sharper distinctions around what makes sense and doesn't make sense to eat from a processed food point of view, even if when you look at the nutrient label, it looks like it's fine. Um, and that might look really different for, for cultured meat and certainly for a lot of plant-based products than it might for meat from animals. 
We have run way over time, but this is such an interesting discussion. Um, just finally, Tom, you mentioned that you're going to be speaking to farmers as part of your research. Is there any way that if any listeners wanted to get in touch that they can feed into that? Yeah, absolutely. So the uh, best way for the time being is to uh, get in touch with me directly. So my um, my email address is on the Royal Agriculture University website, so reu.ac.uk. And um, they can just look me up and pop me an email or my phone number is on there too and just get in touch and then we'll we'll um, we'll get in touch about the project. Uh, it's we're, we're starting properly in September. So it's uh, it's kind of, we're, we're getting set up at the moment, but in the meantime, that's the best way to go about it. And um, yeah, very much hope to hear from people and all, 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 all views and perspectives on it is really welcome. That's it for this week's Over the Farm Gates. If you enjoyed this episode, please do share it on social media with your family and friends. And don't forget to pick up a copy of this week's Farmer's Guardian, where you can read about how Welsh Government has been accused of gazumping young farmers for land to plant trees, and what's next for the milk market as prices reach 50 pence per litre. Until next week, from us at FG, thank you for listening.